0: Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. So I've been on the agenda to preach for the last few weeks. I kept getting pushed back, and uh, when it came down to it, I have been stewing on Psalm 139 for quite a long time, and it's become very precious to me. And so, rather than preaching on the book of Acts, uh, I'm preaching on this psalm today. And it feels very fitting, because uh, summertime, to me, feels like the time for psalms. A few years back, our musicians started to set the psalms to, to music in their particular style, and style of music, and uh, they, so we would preach through the psalms in the summer. And so it's just summertime, and so it's time to preach on the psalms. It just feels right. Um, so, our scripture text is Psalm 139, and I'll read it to you now. For the choir director, a psalm of David. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, And your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, I used to think that this was a psalm of assurance and comfort. You know, it talks a lot about God being near us. And so, I used to think that it was uh, about the peace and the comfort that we have in God. Now, there's lots of psalms that talk about the comfort that we get from God. In Psalm 4, for instance, it says, You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. In Psalm 34, it says, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help and trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, Though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Psalm 121 says, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So, as I said, this is just a smattering, but there are many Psalms that speak of God's comfort. And of the peace that we can have in God. This psalm is not one of them. Psalm 139. This psalm is what comes before the peace and the comfort that we have in God. It is about the agony and the struggle and the pain to get there. So if you've been struggling recently, this is for you. Verses 1-5. through are simply statements of fact. Look at the words again. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path, my lying down. You're intimately acquainted with everything that I do. Even before I say anything, behold, you know it all. You have hemmed me in. You've enclosed me behind, before. You have laid your hand upon me. We are completely known by God, we're hemmed in by God, we're utterly, totally vulnerable to God, entirely and absolutely. Now, my family enjoys a kid's movie, animated movie, called Kung Fu Panda. Have you guys seen Kung Fu Panda before? It's a a fun movie. Uh, The idea behind it is that this panda wants to be the... uh, the best kung fu warrior in the land, right? And if you've ever seen those YouTube videos of pandas, like, rolling around on the ground, you get where the comedy is coming from, right? It's kind of a ridiculous idea. Um, it's a delightful movie, and it actually has these uh, nuggets of wisdom in it, right? It's it's trying to tease out the the, the the way that we have this illusion of control in our lives, right? We like to think that we are controlling things, but reality is we have very little control over almost anything, right? It also talks about uh, how we really don't know how to live. Like, we don't, as people, know how to exist without something to believe in, to hope in, something to strive for. And, uh, you know, that comes up as well. It also talks about how we should live with gratitude every day of our lives. Um, And, so these are basic truths, right? The illusion of control, having something to believe in, the living with gratitude. These are, these are basic truths, basic goods, basic pieces of wisdom uh, that, that about the world that we live in. They, they tell us about our limitations. And the truth is, they are actually taught in various forms and in various ways, and various, you know, in different philosophies and in different religions in both the East and the West. And so all that's true as far as it goes, but the movie, this this movie, Kung Fu Panda, repeatedly refers to the universe, right? It talks about the universe. It's pushing this kind of Eastern pantheistic religion where there's not a person back there. It's just the the universe. Well, the truth from scripture is not Eastern pantheism, right? We don't butt up against the universe. We butt up against God in our lives. So, you are not in control. God is. Right? You're not supposed to believe in the universe and hope in the universe. You're supposed to trust God. This is what we're called to do. You're not supposed to live a life of gratitude to some nameless void. You're supposed to be grateful to God. We are not hemmed in by and known by and vulnerable to the universe. We are all those things toward a person, toward God. And so a fundamental aspect of our lives is that everything we do, absolutely everything, is in relation to God. It's in relation to God. Now, do you believe this? Do you believe this about your life, whether it comes to your job or your marriage Your nationality, where you were born, your abilities and gifts, or your weaknesses and inabilities, your body, your sexuality, the family you were born into or grew up in. We are not known by the universe, right? We're not hemmed in by, our boundaries are not set by the universe. We are known by God. His hand is on us. Now, it's one thing to, you know, we can think about our lives in this, so I, I want to take a minute and think about the life of King David, the guy that wrote this psalm. I mean, whoa. You think you have problems? Whoa. <laughs> this guy had problems. Problems. King David had many highs and many lows in his life. You could make multiple movies about his life, right? Not just one. Uh, even as a, as a young boy... He watched uh, watched the flock by night, right? You kids, some of you kids, struggle with having to endure things that are intensely boring, right? Have you ever had to stay up all night and watch stupid sheep, you know? And sure, I'm sure there were nights that it was exciting, but man, I bet a lot of it was very boring. So... He goes from herding sheep, or whatever it is you do with sheep, to uh, becoming anoint, being anointed as king, right? And, and going to serve in the king's court. That's got to be pretty exciting. You know, he was identified as a master musician, and so he goes and plays in the king's court. And then, he defeats the giant Goliath in battle. Now, what young man doesn't want to be the guy that kills Goliath? Cuts off Goliath's head. I mean, talk about a mountaintop experience. That's pretty amazing. But it all turns into a horror story when the king, his own father-in-law, turns against him and pursues him, trying to kill him. And that's not clear. You know, I don't know exactly how long that went on, but it seems like it was years, right? Where King David was just running away from The king of Israel. I mean, like, what is this about? What an awful place to be in. When King Saul dies, David returns to Israel and is just completely vindicated. Totally vindicated. He becomes the king. And man, I mean, it's got to feel good, right? He's at the top again. At the top. But then, we all know David's most famous sin. He had a number of them, but... He uh, committed adultery with another man's wife and then arranged for that man, a faithful warrior of his, to be killed. And he's confronted by, the, by Nathan the prophet. Whoa, that's not a high. And then David's family life is horrible. I mean, whoa. Uh, Absalom, his son, turns against him and tries to tear the kingdom from his hands. Like, Wow. I mean, whew. David, I think in, in verse 6, is thinking about his life and thinking to himself, how can I even explain my life? How do I even understand this? Like, what, how does this even make sense? And we all do that. We all should do that. Think about our lives and like, what, what is even going on here? And there's a number of responses you can have. You know, some of us might be tempted to be proud. Like, look, my kids are doing great. I have this amazing job. I pulled myself up on my bootstraps. Look what I've done. This is amazing. This is amazing. So we're proud. Our response to thinking about our lives is pride. Or, if things aren't going the way you want, and your expectations haven't been met, You can be bitter and angry. And, you know, as we get older, we have to think about these things. But you may not be at the end of your life, but this pattern repeats itself every day. Every day. We think about what happened in this day, in the last day, and we're tempted to be proud or maybe bitter and angry. How does King David respond? Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. After considering his life, David responds to God with humility. God, I don't know the first thing about it. Honestly, uh, you're, you're in charge, and I don't know. I don't know. He's, he's humble before God. Now, he goes on considering his relationship to God in, in, verse, in this next section, verses 7 to 12. And... Uh, these verses are interesting because, and these verses are the, the ones that really stuck out to me, the, ones, the, the, the reason this psalm grabbed my attention, because I used to think that these were words of encouragement and peace and comfort, because they're all about God being near to us, right? And so that makes sense, but they, these verses have become all the more precious to me because of, I've understood them a different way. And my question is, what helped me realize what they're really about is asking myself, are these, could these possibly be the words of a guy who's like luxuriating in the presence of God and enjoying God's presence? Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? This does not sound like somebody who's enjoying his time with God. Have you ever wanted to crawl into a hole and just die? Right? Where the pain was so intense that you would just do anything for it to be over. Now maybe if you had the faith, you wouldn't say that you just wanted to die. Maybe you just just want to crawl in a hole and just disappear. Just be gone. You want it to be done. Well, what's actually going on there? God, won't you please leave me alone? Won't you just leave me alone? It reads very differently. These verses read very differently if you see them as a man trying desperately to flee from the presence of God. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the grave, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely, surely, The darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Now, there are many ways that we try to flee the presence of God. Sex, drugs, pain pills, work, food, video games, we will do anything to avoid dealing with God. But what if I told you that God is sovereign and in charge of everything that goes on here? Not that he's responsible for sin, but that he's in control. He's in control of cancer and death, car accidents, failing grades. He's not responsible for sin and evil. That's our part. But he is in control. Now, every one of us has burdens to bear. We all have our highs and our lows. Um, We all have our challenges in life. Uh, Many of you know, most of you I would think, if you've been around any any amount of time. uh, Hannah and I have a daughter, Mary, who has a very rare genetic disorder. And, uh, you know, when she was born, she was born a few couple of weeks, two or three weeks premature. You know, it wasn't a big deal. Nothing, nothing strange about that. But she contacted RSV early on, uh, which is a virus. And it's generally not a big deal for adults, but if a little infant baby gets it, it's, it's life threatening. And so we spent a few weeks in the ICU up in Indianapolis at St. Vincent's. Um, of course, any parent in the ICU know that, knows that that's a difficult. Difficult situation. That's very hard. Um, the Lord brought us through that, and then when we came home, we thought, oh, this is great. We get to go back to to normal to, to normal. <clears throat> but uh, for months Mary wouldn't eat. And, and no matter how Hannah, hard Hannah tried, she couldn't, she couldn't get her to eat. Um, and so she was basically starving until we had a tube placed, placed for her. And I, I uh, you know, obviously lots of thoughts about Adam this weekend. Um, I remember us being so worried about a tube, you know. And of course now it seems silly. Of course, that was the best thing ever, but it was really sweet that he said, no, 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 you want to put a tube. She needs a tube. That was, that was kindness. And so, so that happened, and she finally was starting to, you know, stabilize, get a little, gain a little bit of weight. And then for, you know, I don't know how long we're talking about, um, but maybe a year, I don't know, maybe longer, uh, Mary Lee would come over twice a, twice a week, and stay the night with Mary, just so that Hannah and I could get some sleep, right? It's, you know, you you young parents, you know, like, wow, sleep is important. (laughs) It's very important. It's not an optional thing. And it was very hard because she just did not sleep well. And so, uh, Mary Lee came over constantly. She served us constantly. Despite many doctor visits, Nobody had any clue what was going on with Mary. You know, physiologically, anatomically, she was everything was normal, or, or normal enough. But nobody had any idea what in the world was going on. And one of the things that I think is, you know, you might not realize about a family with someone with a child with medical difficulties is that the couple is uh, fights all the time. The couple is fighting all the time. And why is that? Uh, I think the reason is because you're talking about Two people who don't know anything about anything, necessarily, medically or other, you know, uh, raising a special needs child. And they're all of a sudden having to deal, make all these decisions that are like, oh my goodness, impossible. They're just so hard. You know, I I, I can remember uh, having these discussions with Hannah where we would talk about maybe going and trying something over the counter and how much would we give her. And, you know, it's just, it's like... um, Wow, this is really, really hard. I I remember after one doctor's appointment that went so badly, it went so badly up in Indianapolis, that Hannah and I sat in our car for about 45 minutes and fought, and then drove straight to Max and Annie's house for some help uh, uh, from 86th Street in Indianapolis. There are times in life, sometimes, life is like being in a dark room with a bag over your head and someone is there hitting you repeatedly, right? (laughs) It's so confusing. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know why it's happening, but all you feel is pain, right? All you feel is pain. Now, God is not the author of evil, but he has led you to that place. Do you trust him? Do you love him? I don't think King David was being comforted in verses 7 to 12. He was wrestling with, with God. He was wrestling with God. And many of us don't want to wrestle with God. We don't want to do that because it's painful. It's not easy. Have you wrestled with God like this? You need to. You, this is not optional. This is not optional. I don't know what it is you have to carry in life, but you have to wrestle with God. Now, verses 13 through 16 continue this wrestling match, I think, Um, but they take it a step further because it's not actually enough to say, okay, God, you're all-knowing and you're in control. That's actually not what God demands of us. He demands more. (laughs) He demands more from us than even that. He is the one who made us. So, I used to think that this section, verses, <laughs> verses 13 through 16, was flattery. You know, I was like, I guess I am pretty fearfully and wonderfully made, you know? <laughs> I mean, I guess if you say so. <laughs> and of course, that is what we would think, right? Like, we would think that. But does God flatter us? No. God doesn't have any time for flattery for, of us. Oh my goodness, no. God does not flatter us. So what's going on here? What's actually happening? God doesn't just know us. It's far beyond that. He made us. He owns us. Everything about us. And so like a master craftsman with his creation, it's not enough. He's not content to build something amazing and then just throw it in the scrapyard. You know? He has plans and expectations for the thing that he has labored over. This is not flattering. This is ownership. This is a burden, a weight to carry. God expects something from you. And it's right, here in the, it's right here in the passage. It actually says, I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God expects us to live with gratitude in our hearts toward him. In Matthew 25, Jesus taught the parable of the talents. A king goes away on a journey, and he leaves some money with his servants for them to use profitably. And two out of three of the servants fulfill his expectations, right? He's happy with what they've done with the money when he returns. But the third has this to say to the king, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, and I was afraid And went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. Is that your attitude toward God? Are you afraid of what he will say? Are you hiding your talent in the ground? This is what the king's response was. You wicked and lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away." Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God expects gratitude and obedience. And he doesn't want just outward obedience. He expects love from a grateful heart. There is no demilitarized zone with God. You don't get to say, you stay over there. Okay, fine, God. Yeah, you made everything. That's great. You stay over there and I'll stay over here. God is not interested in our boundaries with him. You are not your own. We are not our own. God has designs for us. Now, verses 17 and 18, I think, are very similar to verse 6. In both instances, David has been reflecting on his life, and he takes a step back to humbly give God honor and praise. He acknowledges in all of it that God is far above him. And you know, I think that we do this whether we intend to or or want to. There's a joke that says that there are two things an atheist knows about God, that he doesn't exist, and that they hate him. Well, I I, I I believe that we can't help testifying to the truth that there is a person out there with whom we have to do, with whom we have to deal. And when someone rejects God, They go all kinds of weird, squirrely places. They end up blaming aliens or the Matrix or uh, come up with any kind of pseudo-scientific myths to try to explain the world around us without God. But David does not approach the world here as if God doesn't exist. And more than that, he doesn't try to solve all the riddles of the world. Uh, This is a temptation for many people Uh, philosophers in particular. Any philosophers here today? But all of us think that if we could just figure it out, if we just know enough, we we can solve the riddles of this world. The world is a very complicated place, and it's actually an attribute of God, not us, we're finite, of God that he's got it figured out. We don't know how it all fits together. And so when David sees the world, his response is, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If if I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. David acknowledges his own limits. And that takes a great deal of wisdom. It takes a very great deal of wisdom to know your own limits. Is that something you are willing to do? Or are you constantly trying to control the world around you? You can't understand the world, let alone control it. This should humble us and drive us to God. Now, verses 19 through 22 were very troubling to me. I couldn't figure out what in the world this section is doing here in this passage, in this psalm. Um, you know, it, it's like you got a man reflecting on his life and. Uh, dealing with God, wrestling with God, and then all of a sudden there's this section about enemies. And so I got to thinking about David's enemies. Who were David's enemies? Well, you got the obvious one, Goliath, right? But then it starts to get very complicated. You got King Saul, his father-in-law, like, that's complicated. Then you have Uriah, one of David's faithful warriors. Was, was Uriah an enemy of David? I don't think so. Then you have Bathsheba, this woman who he committed adultery with and then became his wife. Is she his enemy? You have the child conceived by David's sin. Is that child David's enemy? This is the way we think today, isn't it? We think that a child conceived in sin is our enemy. And then you have Absalom, his son, who tried to raise a revolt against his own father. Is he really his enemy? It seems like it should be very obvious to us to know the difference between our friends and our enemies. But I, I think it takes a great deal of wisdom, actually. It takes a great deal of wisdom to know the difference between your enemies and your friends. And so, I don't think that this section is weirdly tacked on in this psalm. I think it's essential to it. You know, God is there when we deal with cancer and natural disasters. But he's there when we deal with people, too. He's there, you know, it said that he's the one that set our boundaries, right? Well, and, and hems us in. He does that with people, too. So what do we learn? What do we learn from this section, verses 19 through 22? Well first of all, uh, I believe it's here to teach us who our enemies are. There's a scene in Kung Fu Panda uh, where a character runs up to the wise old Kung Fu master and tries to tell him some terrible news, right? The response of the Kung Fu master is, there is no good news, there is no bad news, there's just news. Well, it sounds like this profound statement, and it is actually a profound religious statement. He's saying that something cannot be good or bad, that it just is. Well, that's fundamentally unbiblical. It's fundamentally unbiblical. There is good, and there is evil. There, are, there is such a thing as a good man and, a, and an evil man. And uh, God is not the author of evil, right? There, there is such a thing as evil, and God is not the author of it. And so, absolutely, we are to oppose the wicked. But I believe that this passage is also here to teach us who our enemies aren't. What is the character of those who are David's true enemies? They are men of bloodshed. They speak against God. They take God's name in vain. They hate God. Do these things describe the person you consider your enemy? Who is it that's driving you crazy in your life? It could be your wife. It could be your dad. It could be a coworker or a boss. Have you considered the possibility that God put that person into your path for your good and your sanctification? If you love God, your enemies will be those who are opposed to God. But we so easily get confused at this point. We think that when somebody is opposing us, they're opposing God. And we all do that. Every single one of us. Sometimes, someone may be driving you crazy, but that doesn't mean that they're an enemy of God. And I want to give a word of caution to the children and teenagers, particularly here, right? Children, teenagers, sorry guys, but this is something that you very easily get confused. You've got friends at school, you've got your family, you've got your little brother who's driving you nuts, you know, you've got your parents, Have you considered the possibility that God has put your parents in your life to teach you something, to help you grow in grace and in holiness? Are they really your enemy? So I I think that this section is essential to the wrestling with God that we have to do. Uh, There is real evil in this world, and there are evil people who should be opposed. But it's probably not your little brother, right? From the beginning, Adam sinned by trying to be like God. And we live like that. We try to be like God. We want to know things that we can't know. We want to be in charge of things that we can't be in charge of. We want to be in control of things that we can't possibly be in control of. But when we come to God, we have to be like little children. Completely open, completely trusting, completely vulnerable. And I want you to notice here the difference between verses 1 to 5 and verses 23 and 24. Uh, in verses 1 through 5, David is just stating facts, you know, stating facts about God, that God is, uh, knows him, knows everything about him. But in verses 23 and 24, it says this, Search me, O God, and know my anxious heart, or know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. The difference is that now he's inviting God to search him, to know him. Are you ready to invite God to weigh every thought and every word that that you've ever spoken? In the end, it's just you and God. The Bible says that it's appointed for man once to die and then to face the judgment. And in the end, you will be utterly and completely alone before God. And if you have the slightest bit of self-knowledge, this is terrifying. This is not uh, not a comforting thought. But God has not revealed himself to us just to crush us. You know, Jesus did not come so that we could eat dirt. God demands that you give everything to him. And it will be painful, but it will be good. God sent Jesus to us because of his love for us. And this is what Jesus said. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. In Psalm 131, the same King David wrote these words, Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother my soul is like a weaned child within me. Is your soul like a little baby sleeping peacefully in his mother's arms? Trust God and come to Jesus like a little child, like that little baby sleeping peacefully in his mother's arms. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do confess that we do attempt in so many ways to be like you when you have limited us. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to be humble and to recognize our limitations and to come to you trusting that you are good and that you will care for us. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.